0: it just a little bit before we invite Steve up here.
1: In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiphas, the word of God came to John, John son of Zechariah, in the wilderness.
0: So these first two verses of Luke, so this came from Luke 3, verses 1 through 22. These first um, couple of verses, with all those big, hard names, well done, by the way, basically is Luke trying to set John in a particular time and place. And you would have noticed perhaps that there are Jewish names as well as Roman names. And basically what he was saying is that the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people, for Jews, for Romans, for you and for me. Frederick Buechner would say that before the gospel can be good news, It must first be bad news. I'll let you think about that for a little bit as Sheila continues on. Verse
1: verse. Verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh sh- shall see the salvation
0: of God. So here Luke is just showing us that John the Baptist, Baptist is indeed fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah had proclaimed centuries before. Now you probably heard this in the Christmas Eve services. They were in Advent, that this was the proclamation that was being made. John the Baptist is fulfilling it. Verse seven, John said to the crowds
1: that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire.
0: So a lot of people were coming out to be baptized, um, maybe just because they were afraid of the wrath that was to come, or they were afraid of some judgment that was coming their way. So John the Baptist calls them out. He calls them a brood of vipers. Do you know what that is? It's a family of snakes, not just any snakes. They are poisonous snakes. So literally, he's calling these guys deceitful, Dangerous, wicked. You know, the only serpent or the serpent that the Jews knew the best was in the creation story. Well, that guy is linked straight to Satan. So John is not mincing any words for these people who are just trying to come forward and get a quick splash on the on the forehead, or in that case, a dunk in the river and then to be gone. John also reminds these people that they can't just rely on being related to Abraham. They have to turn their lives around. You know, that whole 180 degrees, you were this way sinful, you need to turn around and change your life and be for God.
1: Verse 10, And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire.
0: Okay, since most of us here, I trust, are not farmers, you might benefit w- from some of the same explanation that I needed when I read this. So, farmers needed to basically, oops, sorry. Did I not change that? There we go. Needed to switch, had, had to separate the grain from the chaff so that they would have the good grain. And so they used something called like a winnowing fork and they would throw it up into the air and then the wind would catch it and would separate those two things from each other. And then what we understand is that that chaff burns with this unquenchable fire. So what they say is it's sort of like when you burn your Christmas tree in January, if anybody does that, it just goes whoosh, like it goes up in smoke. To this day, farmers know that a fire in like a dry field, it cannot be contained. It can't be controlled. So when John was saying this, this message is clearly one of judgment. But we have to remember that when repentance and forgiveness are available, judgment is actually good news.
1: Verse 18, So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my
0: Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Let us pray. God of grace and mercy, open our hearts and minds to hear the message that you intend for each one of us from the word just read and the words to come. Amen.
2: Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. It's good to be here. Uh, it feels kind of like the first Sunday of New Year's because I wasn't here last Sunday. I was up in New York City doing a wedding, um, so I'm kind of glad to be back here, though it kind of feels like New York City did last weekend. So. So, yeah, with Christmas and New Year's now over, we are uh, now kind of turning, we have actually over the last couple weeks, turning the story into a, a new section of the Bible, going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as was just read from the Gospel according to Luke, we are now beginning to focus our attention on the life and ministry of Jesus. You remember, we've been taking this journey through the Old Testament, kind of listening to the narrative of God, God's promises to God's people, all through the Old Testament. And now here we are in the New Testament listening for and uh, awaiting the arrival of Jesus into the world. And so with that, we're going to begin a sermon series today entitled, It's Bigger Than You. It's Bigger Than You. One of the great discoveries of life is the discovery when you realize that it is not all about you. That's a very difficult concept to internalize, especially when you're young, two years old, 16 years old. 50 years old, whatever the case may be. It's kind of a hard thing for us to understand that the world is actually bigger than us. But if there's anything about the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus that tells us that life is bigger than you, life is bigger than you, the kingdom of heaven is bigger than you. In fact, the great joy of living comes, we discover, when you realize that the purpose of your life is actually outside of yourself. The joy is realized outside of yourself. And we're going to wonder about that over the next several weeks. And we're going to begin, though, today, as we have by listening to that story of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, ironically, begins the telling of the gospel by telling us, first of all, that it is, it starts with us. That this journey that we take outside of ourselves has to start with who you and I are, and John the Baptist has a very pointed message for each and every one of us as we're trying to understand where do we go to find the great joy of life. So with that, will you please pray with me for a moment? Lord, we pray that you will fill these words to come and allow these words to point to the word just read and most importantly to the word that we know, especially at Christmas time, the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's been about 10 years since the death of the French sculptor Armand. He was 76 years old, and unless you are a student of and fan of modern art, or should I say avant garde art, you will not likely find his name familiar. Anyone ever hear the name Armand? See, I'm right. <clears throat> but Ten years ago, I noticed his obituary, and I began to dig further and learned that Armand made his name in the art world because of the material he used for his art. The material or the medium that Armand used to make his sculptures was junk. The stuff that you and I throw away, the stuff that you and I take to the dump, the stuff that you and I take to our garage sales, but then it doesn't get sold. That very stuff is the stuff that Armand used to create his sculptures, squeezed out paint tubes, abandoned cars, old buttons and typewriters, thrown away musical instruments, car parts, bicycles. He would manipulate this junk into his own vision of art admirers of Armand's vision, and those who appreciated his style of art remained in a very significant minority within the art community. It's hard to really internalize and to understand what he's saying, But most agree that probably what he was up to was something very deep philosophically and theologically that takes a while to kind of figure out. In the effort to take all these things that do not matter in our society, those things that we kind of throw away, Armand takes those things and creates a form of art to take the things that don't matter to us and takes them and makes them into something that does matter. I think we could all probably agree that we live in a society where we find it fairly easy to render things as not mattering anymore. We live right in the throwaway age. We live in this disposable days. If you need evidence of that, just take a drive out to the end of Bee Ridge Road and you will find one of the only mountains in Sarasota. Mountains is kind of overstating it. One of the very big hills in Sarasota, and what you'll realize is the sign says Rothenbach Park, but if you've been around Sarasota long enough, you know that that was what? The dump. The The biggest mountain in Sarasota is the dump. It's now turned into a beautiful park. It was a landfill, made a beautiful park out of it. I ride my bike around it all the time. But that's a great illustration, right, for us when we think about the stuff that we wanna throw away. We are. Constantly discarding those things that don't matter to us anymore. In the time it took my, me to write this sermon, I filled my trash back, my trash bucket up halfway, with at least three drafts of my sermon. So to live in a disposable society, though, is to realize that there is this temptation for us to widen our scope and respect the things that don't matter. In fact, we can widen our scope so wide as to say that maybe life itself doesn't really matter, that our earthly existence doesn't really matter. It's the age-old philosophical and existential question. Does life really have any meaning? Or are we, at the end of the day, just one more thing that gets thrown on top of of the trash heap on top of the landfill. Well, I suppose that's what was was happening in the Garden of Eden long ago when Adam and Eve were created. Scripture says that when God created human beings, he created them in his image. It's another way of saying that when God created men and women, he created them in such a way as that they mattered. Genesis would tell us that they mattered most of all, that they were an extension of him, that he created them in a way that mattered. You matter to me, God says in the Garden of Eden. It matters who you are. It matters what you do. But then as the story goes, we remember, right, the serpent slips into the garden and the temptation begins. And the core of the temptation is this message to Adam and Eve that who they are and that what they do, it doesn't really matter, the serpent says. Go ahead. Do whatever you want to do because it doesn't matter. Don't worry about doing what God wants you to do because it doesn't matter. And, of course, the implied message to all that is that Adam and Eve themselves don't matter. And that has been the struggle of human existence to understand and decide whether or not our life, your life, my life really matters. Well, then enter the stage, one John the Baptist. John the Baptist walks onto the stage in this first-century uniform of leather and camel's hair, and he begins preaching that the time is soon to come when the Messiah will soon arrive. He preaches a pra- and practices a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His is a voice crying in the wilderness, and he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, repent, turn your life around, get with the program. John is this over the top preacher, kind of preacher that gets your attention, leaves nothing for interpretation. Repent, he says, turn your life around. And don't you wonder if what John is trying to say is that it really matters? Life really matters. It matters what you do, what you say, who you are. In other words, John says, the stakes are raised. A new value has been set for life. No such thing as junk in anybody's life. You are the medium, John says, of a brilliant piece of art. And so the crowd's asking, well, what then should we do? And John says to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise, and tax collectors should collect no more than the amount prescribed to them, and soldiers should not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. You see, you could not get away from John without the distinct impression that everything you were and everything you did mattered. If you have two coats, John says, if you have two coats... It matters what you do with that second coat. Because if you're not wearing it, somebody else should be. John says, if you got more than enough food, it matters what that food you don't eat, it matters where that goes. And it probably shouldn't end up on the end of Bee Ridge Road. John says, Your life matters. My life matters, and what we do matters. He's, called, he's calling us, in a sense, to come back into the Garden of Eden because in the Garden of Eden, we learn that everything matters. And the reason John calls us there to that place is because the one who made all that matters, the one whose image we bear, the one who was there at the very beginning, was the one who was coming into the world. Jesus was now stepping onto the stage, and when Jesus steps onto the stage, John says, when the Messiah stands in front of us, all oh, friends, it matters. Because the old man, Adam, gave in to the temptation to think it didn't matter. But the new man, Jesus, walks into the Jordan River and announces that everything matters now. Remember when you were in school and the teacher was lecturing and trying to explain a concept or a problem, and it never failed that someone raised their hand and asked the proverbial middle school question, do we need to know this for the test? When Jesus walks onto the stage and says, everything matters now. Everything is going to be on the test. Because, you see, in Christ, God seeks to elevate once again what it means to be a human being. He wants to show us how our lives have consequence. It matters the kind of person you are. It matters the kinds of things you do. And that's the good news. It reminds me of the story I read a while back about two brothers named John and Greg Rice who lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. You can switch the slide. John were, John uh, and Greg were perfectly normal men except for one thing. They were dwarves. They grew to be only two feet, ten inches tall. But that wasn't the bad news. The bad news was that they were born to a mother who abandoned them in the hospital, discarded them. They didn't, excuse the phrase, measure up. For eight months, the authorities tried to find a home for these cast-off children. And after eight months, a Pentecostal Christian family stepped forward and claimed them, made them their children. And as these dwarves grew older and began their way into the world, they found the unkind regions of childhood and got their fair share of shunning, and kidding and abuse, and when they couldn't go back into the world anymore, they went to their mother, and their good Christian mother sat them down and told them that God made them different. God made them smaller, but smaller never means lesser, and that's when she pulled out a nickel and a dime, and she asked which of the coins was bigger, and they said the nickel, and she said which is worth more, and they said the dime. And she said, well, consider yourselves now, two dimes and a handful of nickels. So we, are the people of God who are created by God in his image. And Jesus walks on the stage and says, I am God in your flesh. And what that means is this is what you're worth. My being here in the flesh is, means this is what you're worth, that you matter to God. My being here tells you that who you are and everything you do from this point on, it really matters. Makes me think of Cliff Richard, one of the pioneers of rock and roll back in Great Britain back in the 50s. I know I date myself and even remembering this guy's name. He he was famous even before the Beatles were famous. He was the first British rock star to be... Um, to be knighted by the queen Cliff Richard was known to be kind of the nasty boy of rock and roll but then all of a sudden in 1964 he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ someone introduced him to Christ Christ came into his life and Richard began to turn his life around and began to involve himself in Christian relief efforts throughout the world places like Sudan and back then Bangladesh and he was this huge rock figure but now he realized that life mattered more than just his music and on one of those trips he was overwhelmed by the by the despair and by the disease and the and the hardship that families and children were having to go through. And it was even hard for him to, to even look at it. And he was afraid to touch the children because, you know, they had their open wounds and their sores, and he didn't want to get himself sick. And, and then he recounts, he says this, I was bending down one day to one little mite, mainly for the photographer's benefit, and trying hard not to have any contact with this child who has these open sores. And finally, at one point in time, somebody had kind of pushed in and stepped on the little boy's fingers, and the boy let out this inconsolable wail, and I grabbed hold of him. Even though he had his sores, I grabbed hold of him, and I felt that warm little body hovered next to mine, and I heard his crying begin to stop. And in that moment, I realized that every, every human life matters, every human life matters. When someone asked Cliff Richard why he did so much and the payoff seemingly to be so small in the face of such overwhelming need, wasn't it, the critics said, just a drop in the bucket? Cliff Richard replied, a drop it may be, but at least the bucket is moist. You know, life has a way of suggesting to you and me that we are of less value than what we really are. The serpent makes its way into our lives, and whether when we look in the mirror or when we go to work or we go to school, just about every time, everywhere we go, the evil one wants to whisper into our ear, you know, it's just a drop in the bucket. It's not worth it. You really don't matter. But we are the people of the newborn Savior, The one who has entered into the world, who has come down and taken on our flesh, and he says to us, this is how much you matter, the stakes are now raised because there is nothing more that matters to him than who his children are and what his children do.
0: Amen. So you may have been in churches in the past that um, have a baptismal font in the doorway that as you're leaving, you can dip your fingers in the water and make a sign of a cross on your forehead so that you can remember who you are and that you can remember that you matter. Um, They say, remember your baptism. Well, the truth be told, many of us don't remember our baptism because it was done when we were infants. But every time we baptize an infant here, or a confirmand, or an adult, we're invited to remember our baptism because of the same words that were said for us. So if you would please stand and you're going to do to practice this repentance turn. If you would just make a 180 degree turn, you will see that we have a baptismal font right back here. And today, we would like to invite you, as you leave, to put your fingers in the water of life, to mark yourself with the sign of the cross, and to remember that. Wherever you go, whoever you are, you belong to Christ. You belong to this family of faith because we are never meant to do life alone. To remember that you matter in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
1: a hurricane, I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy, when all of a sudden, I am unaware of these afflictions he